We had a milestone in our family's life this past week. Our oldest daughter, Elizabeth, got her driver's permit. Uh, so her learning permit, there's a picture uh, that we took outside the Department of Public Safety uh, in Bryan uh, with her new learner, learner's permit. So of course, that means she can't drive on her own yet. Uh, she has to drive with one of the parents in the car. I think the theory of the Department of Public Safety is that uh, she can only uh, drive if she also endangers a parent at the same time. So she is learning, right? So uh, we went out yesterday and we, we practiced a little bit, just kind of looping a parking lot. And we talked about some of the hazards that you might face when you go out there on the roads. And then we drove through a very quiet neighborhood uh, just so she could practice going through some of the streets. And, and uh, we talked about all of the, the things you need to think about when you're driving. Uh, you know, and I was remembering that when I learned to drive, it occurred to me they didn't immediately hand us a permit and place us out on the roads. I don't know if anybody else had this experience. Actually, I know some people of my age did and others did not, but I actually had to practice first in a simulator. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but I had to go into like a trailer at my high school. I took driver's ed at school, and you would sit down in a chair that felt like the driver's seat of a car, and you would add all, all of the controls that looked like real controls from a car, the gear shift and the wheel and the, the dash and all of those controls, but, but you didn't actually go anywhere, right? So you would watch on a screen a video of what looked like you were driving down the road, and they even filmed what would be possible hazards on the road, a dog running across the road, somebody opening a car door and jumping out in the street in front of you, things that you might actually face on the road. You had to do a certain number of simulator hours before they handed you a permit and said, now you can go and drive on the real road. But the reality is this, that no matter how many hours you spent in the simulator, there was still a lot of unexpected events and a lot of things that could go wrong when you got on the actual road, right? The simulator is great, but the simulator is not sufficient because when you get out on the actual road, you have so little control. You can't control the other drivers. That's probably the craziest hazard on the road, especially on a game weekend here in Aguilet. Right, so last night, uh, I picked up my daughter from a babysitting job, was driving her home, pulled up at a stop sign, stopped at the stop sign, and just as I was about to go, somebody came from the left and just ran right through their stop sign, right in front of us, right? I can't control that. You can't control the weather. You can't control road construction. Sometimes you can't even control your own vehicle. Something might go wrong with your car, right? So there's a huge difference between practice and reality. There's a huge difference between the simulator and the loss of control that you are going to experience inevitably when you go out on the road. I share that because this week, as we dive into Exodus chapters 5 through 10, and don't panic, we're not going to read it all, but as we dive into those passages, here's what we're going to see. We will see Moses go from training to be the leader of Israel to actually trying to do it. We're going to see Moses go from the wilderness where he is in the presence of God. And God says, Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And in fact, Moses, here's what Pharaoh's going to say to you. 
And Moses, here are the signs that you need to give to Pharaoh. And so Moses there in the wilderness, he actually practices the signs, right? He throws the staff down on the ground. Staff turns into a snake. He picks up the snake, turns back into a staff, puts his hand in his robe, pulls it back out. It's got leprosy, puts his hand back, pulls it back out. It's clean. God says, if that doesn't work, you're going to turn the Nile into blood, right? So God tells him exactly what to say, tells him exactly where to go, gives him all the training, all the info, everything he needs. And yet when Moses actually goes to confront Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Moses experiences something that I think all of us eventually experience when we step out to obey God. And that is he experiences real opposition. Opposition that is stronger than he expected And stronger than he was ready to handle. Because Pharaoh's response is going to be, who is the Lord? And besides, I don't want to let these people go. And Pharaoh stands in between Moses and the will of God. And he pushes back with an opposition that ultimately is a demonic opposition, but an opposition also that we're going to see that God controls, right? And one of the things that Moses is going to find, and here's really what I want us to find as we walk through this passage. One of the things that Moses will find is this, just because you face opposition doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Just because you face opposition in serving the Lord doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. In fact, sometimes when you face opposition, that's actually a sign you're doing everything right. And yet what Moses will also find is that in the midst of that fear, in the midst of that chaos, he goes out on the road and he goes, whoa, things are not what I expected or hoped. And yet God's still in control. And for you and me, here's the question that I want us to ask ourselves. It's a real simple question. It's a question you've probably been asking since you were in elementary school the age of these kids that just came and left. Here's the question. Do you trust that God's in control? Right, we're about to enter into a brand new election season. Yay, right? Do you trust that God's in control? Or are you panicked about the course of our nation? Are you worried that somebody's going to end up in office who has a power to turn the course of our nation and world, who has a power greater than God? Are you panicked? Or maybe you're not panicked about national and global events. You're just panicked about your life. Right? So you say, I want to I honor God. And as long as you hold your faith in God all to yourself, things seem okay. But you say, you know what? As soon as I decide that I want to take a step forward and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to read my Bible and pray All of a sudden, a quiet house turns into a crazy house in those 15 minutes. And you say, why God? What am I doing wrong? I'm trying to honor you. Or all of a sudden you say, you know what? In my neighborhood and with my coworkers and with my family, I want to begin to live and proclaim what I believe about Jesus. And you step out and you begin to do those things. You begin to speak the name of Jesus and you begin to draw a line between the things you will do and the places you will go because you want to honor Jesus. You begin to draw a line between your behavior and that of the world. And you, maybe you expect peace 
and happiness and joy. And you get opposition. And just like Moses, you say, God, what are you, what are you doing? What are you up to? What we're going to see as we move through the passage this morning is God's going to say to Moses and to us, do you trust me that I'm in control? Not only of your life and my life, do you trust me that I'm in control of the universe? That God turns the hearts of kings and princes and presidents as easily as he turned the course of the Nile River to take Moses right where he wanted him to be. So let's walk through Exodus chapter 5 through 10 this morning. Here's the first thing we're going to see. God's plan always faces opposition. God's plan always faces opposition. Now, in order to get into our story, I'm going to read most of chapter 5 for us this morning. So I want you to bear with me. If you've got a Bible, read along with me. I think it's important for us to get the setting here. I'm actually going to start at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 29. Remember, God had told Moses, hey, Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses resisted and resisted. Finally, he decides to go. Verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low. And worshiped. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you're no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves." But the quota of bricks which they were making previously you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. One translation I read this week said they are slackers. Therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work at it so they will pay no attention to false words. Now drop down to verse 15. Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why do you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, make bricks and behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. But he said, you are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So now go and work for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. Verse 20, when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses finally obeys. 
And Pharaoh says, look, I'm going to make things even worse for the people that your God says he's going to deliver. I don't want them even to have time to listen to all this nonsense. So he increases their workload. They have to not only make the bricks, but they have to gather the straw. And so now not only is Pharaoh against Moses, but the the elders and the foremen of Israel are against Moses. They go, we were better off before you came in here meddling. And so Moses says, God, why'd you send me here in the first place? Things were okay, right? And what we're going to see God say to Moses through this passage, he's going to say, Moses, I want you to wait. I want you to trust me. Here's what you need to know. The opposition is a necessary part of the victory that God's about to win. The opposition is a necessary part of the victory that God's about to win. Because what God is about to do is he's going to demonstrate his might and his power, not only over Pharaoh, not only over Israel, but over all of the false gods of Egypt. And so Moses would say to, to, uh, God would say to Moses what he would say to us. Just because there's opposition doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. I want you to think for just a minute about watching the Aggie football team yesterday, and then you probably watch them again next week, right? And think about how all week long they train, right? All week long they practice, they train. They think about throwing the ball and running the ball and blocking and tackling and all of the skills that they need to have in order to play the game. Now imagine that at halftime they were losing and they go in and they say, Coach Fisher, this isn't fair because no matter how hard we practice and no matter what we do, There are always other guys out there on the field who are trying to stop us. They try to tackle us first. They try to take the ball. They try to steal it. They try to catch us as we're running as fast as we can and block us from getting into the end zone. It's not fair. What would he say? Well, that's the game. And they go, well, what are we doing wrong? We practiced hard. Nothing. Opposition is part of the game. And what Moses sees as he follows God and what we often see is that opposition is often part of how God demonstrates his power and his glory and his might, but also his grace. We're going to see this play out as we move throughout the narrative of the plagues. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, the scripture says you will experience opposition. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right, now you, you may not experience what the Israelites experienced. You may not experience beatings and pain and imprisonment and death in the same way. But as you and I step out and we say, God, I want to begin to use my time and my money and my energy to honor you, not only within the confines of my home, but also out in public where I live and where I work and where I play. You'll experience opposition and hostility. Maybe in the form of social isolation, maybe in the form of of comments people make to your face, maybe in the form of lost opportunities in the workplace. But it will occur. 
I'll never forget the first time that I shared the gospel with a co-worker in a way that I felt was appropriate and in a way that I felt did not take away from work time, right? During a break, whatever, a conversation begins and I, I share the gospel and I think, man, this is awesome. I have this opportunity to represent God. And she simply said, I don't want to talk about this and I don't want to talk to you and got up. And I thought, wait a minute, that's not how I imagined that playing out in my head before that conversation began. Right, for a week, she, she didn't look at me or, or speak to me in the workplace. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And part of the reason is because we also have an enemy who is not of flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Until Jesus returns, there will be people who oppose God and the people of God because they are moved by God's enemy, the devil himself. And often we'll see God allows this opposition. And in the case of Pharaoh, in fact, God even seems to superintend and move in the midst of this opposition. We'll see that in a few minutes. For his glory, for his victory, to say, I am always in control, right? So if it feels to you like you say, you know what, the, the harder I try to follow God, the more I try to trust Him, the more I try to pray, the more I try to bring spiritual realities into my family life and into my work life, the more that I try to do that, it seems like the harder things get. You're in good company. Because that's been the reality of the people of God ever since the beginning. It was Moses' reality, and it's ours. Opposition doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. And we live in a culture that perpetrates this great lie of prosperity, right? That if I follow God, my opportunities will increase, my finances will get better, my relationships will always be smooth and without trouble. And it's a lie. Those who follow God will experience opposition. But here's what God demonstrates next. He says, God's power always wins. Right? When Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and he says, you need to let these people go. Pharaoh's response again is, who's the Lord that I should obey him? And besides, I don't want to let him go. And so what follows is God's answer. Pharaoh, you asked, who is the Lord? I'm going to show you. And so in chapters 7 to 10, there are a series of judgments, what we have called the, the 10 plagues on Egypt, a series of judgments that God launches against the nation of Egypt in order to say, Pharaoh, you want to know who I am? I'm the Lord, the God of heaven and earth. And the God who promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that I would deliver these people out of the hands of the Egyptians into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So in chapter 7 through 10, we have these 10 judgments, these 10 plagues. The first one, the Nile turns into blood. The Nile was the, the primary source of life. It was their water source. Without the Nile, they would die. Nile turns to blood. It says they have to dig and dig and dig just to get to any fresh water. 
plague of frogs that cover the land. I'm going to talk about that one in a moment. Gnats everywhere. Flies. Dead livestock, the cows and the horses and the donkeys, all the livestock die. Boils on the skin of all of the Egyptians. Hail that destroys the crops and kills some people and some more livestock. Locusts that swarm the land and destroy whatever was left from the hail. Darkness so thick you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then we'll talk about this one more next week. The death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now, any one of these plagues by itself would be devastating, right? Any one of these plagues by itself would be devastating. If you don't have water, you die. I was thinking this week about the locust plague. Several years ago, I read all of the Little House on the Prairie books with my daughters. And uh, so one of them on the banks of Plum Creek uh, tells a story about a real locust plague that happened in 1874 up in the northern part of the United States. It was called the Rocky Mountain Locust. Over a period of several days, over three billion Rocky Mountain locusts found their way to Minnesota, where they devastated the crop. And Lori Ingalls Wilder describes locusts in the house, locusts piled so thick that you couldn't go anywhere without crunching them underfoot, locusts in your clothes, locusts everywhere. And they killed the crop. And they were sweeping them away for weeks. That's just one of the ten. Any one of these would be devastating on its own. And they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. And what's interesting, every time one comes, Pharaoh seems to immediately go, okay, I'm going to let y'all go. And then he changes his mind. And so the passage says, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And as you move throughout this passage, it's very interesting that there's this, there's this alternating between Pharaoh hardening his heart, and then it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So I wrote this down this week in these three or four chapters. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned 15 times. Six times it says God hardened his heart. And nine times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which is it? Well, it's both. It's not that Pharaoh was going to be compliant. But God further hardens his heart to make a point about who is in charge. Pharaoh, you want to ask who is the Lord? I'm going to show you who is Lord. Go ahead, Pharaoh. Harden your heart a little further. Go ahead, Pharaoh. Resist me a little further because every time you resist, I'm going to show you my power. And ultimately, God's power is demonstrated against all the gods of Egypt. See, what's interesting is all of these plagues, you actually could correlate to one of the gods of Egypt. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations. Okay, Uh, Exodus 12, 12. God says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Why? For I am the Lord. Later on, Jethro, after God delivers them, he says, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. He says, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is what? He is greater than all the other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So let me show you something. This is one of the gods of Egypt. Her name is Heket. You can see that she is a woman with the face of a frog, right? 5,000 years without moisturizing. Just kidding. That's not part of the legend, right? But 
She has the face of a frog. She's a fertility goddess. They believed that frogs were a sign of fertility because so many of them were around the Nile. And so they worshiped a God who had the face of a frog. And so the second plague is what? Frogs. God says, you people like to worship froggies. So here's some froggies. And he fills the land with frogs. Who controls the frogs? The God of creation. Here's another one. You may be more familiar with this one. His name is Ra. He's the sun god. He looks like a falcon and he's balancing the sun on his head. The Egyptians worshipped the god of the sun. Plague nine is what? Darkness. So thick you can't see your hand. God says, you want to worship the sun. Who can flip off the sun like a light? The god of the Hebrews. God says, Pharaoh, you want to oppose me. I'll show you who I am. And he says to Israel, you wonder if I will deliver you. Let me just show you a demonstration of my power and my glory. This is God saying, Pharaoh, you want to tangle? I'm going to win. Every so often, my son will challenge me to a push-up contest. Who can do the most? Right? And we'll begin... And sometimes he'll ask me a question that is like this. He says, Dad, how many are we going to do? And I always say, I don't know about you. I'm going to do one more than you. Right? However many you do, there's going to be a plus one. I'm going to do one more. Why? Because you threw down. You challenged me. And while I am still at this moment in history stronger than you, I need to establish my dominance before you realize that you'll one day be stronger than me. The day is coming. But the day will never come when the kings and the rulers and the presidents and the princes of this world will be stronger than Yahweh. The day will never come. And so Pharaoh goes, look, we've got all our gods. Who's the Lord that I would listen to him? And God says, I'll show you. And Israel says, look, things are getting worse, a lot worse, Moses. Why'd you ever come? What is God going to do for us? And God says, let me show you. Let me show you. Who's in control? Not only of your life, but of the course of the world. God can take Pharaoh's heart and turn it on a dime. And so God's power always wins. And what's beautiful about this passage God doesn't just demonstrate his power as some sort of way to, to beat his chest and say, look, I'm, I'm bigger, I'm greater. Here's why God demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his power in service to his promises. He demonstrates his power in service to the redemption of his people. Right, So that what we're going to see is that God's promises are, are always true. And what God will say to Moses in chapter 6, Moses comes, remember, at the end of chapter 5, and he says, ever since I came to Pharaoh, he's done harm to this people. You've not delivered your people. Now look at God's response, chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. You see what God says. He says, hey, hey, Moses, Moses, listen, I'm going to show you what I can do. And here's why, because I made a promise. You remember Abraham, you remember Isaac, you remember Jacob. I am their God and I am your God. I promised them that I would develop you into a nation great as the sands on the seashore. I promised them that I would give them the land of the Canaanites, a beautiful and good land flowing with milk and honey. I promised them that they would be a blessing to all the nations on earth. And so here comes the might and the power of God, but not just as a random display, but because God says, I want to use my power and my might to save my people. Do you see that? A ruler who would say, a leader who would say, whatever power I have, I want to use it for your benefit. Many years ago, when I was a kid, I remember reading a, a book. It's not a novel. It's a nonfiction book. It's called On Wings of Eagles. And, and the, the, the idea behind the book, the story at the center of the book, it was written by Ken Follett. Some of you may have read it. It, it. it centers around two employees of electronic data systems who find themselves imprisoned in Iran during the hostage crisis of the late 1970s. And, and, and the CEO of EDS at the time was Ross Perot the Texas billionaire, and he was concerned about his employees and he tried diplomatic channels to get them out. He tried everything he could think of. And so finally what he did is he said, I'm going to get them out. And so he uses his money, his connections, his influence to assemble a team to go to Iran and get his guys out. And I remember just being powerfully impressed at the end of that book Whatever you think about that man, powerfully impressed at the end of that book at a man who would use all of this power to save his people. God has all the power in the universe. And he says, I'm going to use all my power in service of my people that I made because I love them. And so God's promises never fail. God's promises or ever always true. God would demonstrate to the Israelites and to the Egyptians that his promises were true, that he was a God that keeps promises. The Israelites, the Egyptians, even the nations surrounding Egypt. What, what I find fascinating, Exodus chapter 12, we're going to look at this in a, in a couple of weeks, but when the people left Egypt eventually in Exodus 12, look at this, it says, a mixed multitude also went up with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. What does that mean, a mixed multitude? Well, it means that there were people from other nations, non-Israelites, probably some Egyptians, 
who said, we see what God did on behalf of his people, and I want to join up with them. I want to be a part of that group. You see that? The power and the might of God is used not only even in service to the Israelites, but in service to the nations. Anybody who's paying attention is going to go, man, we just saw the gods of Egypt get whipped by the God of the Hebrews. He must love those people. Can I be a part of them? And they join. And that was part of God's promise to Abraham, by the way, was that this nation would bless all the nations on the earth. And of course, what we'll see eventually is that the God who has all the power in the universe, he has power over Satan, he has power over death, he has power over sin. And so he would send his own son in the greatest demonstration of mercy and power in all of history. And Jesus succumbed to death because of the opposition of a world against him, but God's power was greater. And so on the third day, Jesus bursts out of the grave and offers life and hope to all who trust in him. So that God's promises are always true, even when we look and we see opposition. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter But do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But according to his promise, we are what? We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God hasn't forgot his promise. He says it to Moses. I didn't forget what I promised to Abraham 400 years ago. God says, I didn't forget what I promised to the people of God who trusted in Jesus 2,000 years ago. I haven't forgotten. I'm not slow. I haven't fallen asleep at the wheel. My power is infinite and my promises are always true. And so you can take it to the bank. If God has promised to be with us always through the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, you can take it to the bank. He's with you. And if He's promised that all who die in Christ Jesus will rise again and a new heavens and a new earth is coming, you can take it to the bank. Even in the face of opposition, even in the face of uncertainty, even in the face of us wondering what's going on, God's in control. So he says, Moses, I want you to trust me. And he says to us, I want you to trust me. And here's ultimately what I want you to do. And he's going to say this as we move further into the passage. Look, Moses, your calling is to obey. Your calling is to obey. Some of you remember that old song you sang when you were in Sunday school. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust and obey. Say, God, if you've made promises that you're in control of the universe, I guess that means I don't need to be in control of it. God, if you've made promises that those who know Jesus Christ will will live forever, will have an eternity with God, I can trust you. And meanwhile, our calling is to obey to learn his word, to proclaim 
the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. We mentioned these passages the last couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We reflect his character. We're called to reflect his character. Secondly, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're called to reflect his character and proclaim his praises. So that the story of Moses and Egypt and the plagues, ultimately it tells us about God, that we have a God who's in charge. And he says, look, I'm in charge of the nations. I'm in charge of the rulers of the world. I'm in charge of the way that the world turns. So I want you to obey. I want you to trust me that my promises are true. I want to circle back for a minute to where we started. So so you think about teaching somebody to drive. I think about teaching my daughter on the road to drive. What, what do I tell her? I say, look, you, you have zero control over what somebody else does, right? You have zero control about that guy who just ran the stop sign. You have zero control over the traffic. You have zero control over the weather. What do you have control over? Your responses. And so what do you do? Well, you learn and you train. You learn and you train, right? So you, you, you take the class and then you practice. You take the class and then you practice. And so you begin to hone your reactions and your instincts and your muscles and your eyes and your mind to respond quickly and appropriately when the occasion arises. So that what we see in the scripture is this. I can't control anything that is out there. I can't control how other people treat me when I try to follow Jesus. I can't control who gets into these positions of power in the world. But I control how I follow Jesus. And so the scripture says this. Trust in the promises of God. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ this morning, the primary exhortation for you is that God has promised eternal life to all who will believe in him. If you believe in Jesus, as these men, women, and children testified this morning, you can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And then as you walk with Jesus, you remind yourself, you say, okay, I don't understand why things are going the way things are going right this moment. But I know what God has promised in his word. And speaking of, then I say, I want to learn more about his word. Right? This is taking the course. This is reading the manual. I say, God, I want to know who you are and what you've done in history. I want to know what your character is like. See, I begin to, to transform my mind when I'm in the scripture. Not just so that I can know where everything is in a Bible trivia quiz. But here's why. Because as I fill my mind with truth, then in those moments when I face lies, lies that say, you know what? If you were doing everything right and if God were good, your life would be happy. When I hear those lies that everything should be going right, I remind myself of the truth of God's word and how the people of God through history have faced opposition, uncertainty, and trial, and yet they've continued to trust him. And he's always been faithful. So I learn about him, and then what do I do? Well, I practice. 
practice obedience. I begin to practice prayer. I begin to practice training my mind, my heart, and my mouth, my hands and my feet to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. So that then as I, as I move out into the world and I say, God, I, I want to follow you, and I experience opposition and pushback and fear and uncertainty, I say, oh, wait, 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 we, we practiced for this. We trained for this. My instincts, my reflexes, my thoughts, my attitudes become increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And it begins in the quietness of my home as I read the Scripture and I pray, God, teach me to know you. God, teach me to trust you. Teach me to reflect and proclaim you. And then I practice not allowing my first response to every situation to be the response I stick with, right? Just like you're going to train your kids driving. You're going to want to hit that horn 50 times a day in this town. Train yourself because you don't want to get shot, right? You train yourself. Your first response of fear, panic, uncertainty, worry. It's not always the best response. It's not always the Christ-like response. But over a period of weeks, months, and years, as I fill my mind with the Word of God, and as I practice obeying Him in the small things, I learn to trust Him in the big ones. That's what God says to Moses. Very simply, will you trust me? And will you obey in the small sphere of influence I've given you? For the glory of God, out of love for him and his people. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. Father, we declare your power. We sang about it earlier. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? We know the answer is nobody. Not us. Not a politician or a president. Not a king or an emperor not the mightiest nation on earth and not the false gods that the world worships. Nobody can stop you. Father, we praise you that you have deployed your power and your might not to hurt us, but to save us. Father, we pray that we would, we would trust in you, trust that your promises are true. And then be willing to faithfully obey, to reflect the character of Jesus, to know your word, and to proclaim you. We thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.